Well, good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Keenan, and uh, I am the RUF campus minister at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what RUF is, it is our denomination's ministry to the college campus. And so I, uh, I serve on, primarily on the campus at UCSB. And so it's my privilege this morning to actually fill in for Kyle. Uh, Kyle is uh, the lead pastor here, and um, he and his wife and daughter are taking a few days of rest. Uh, I think he had a wedding this weekend, but I think they're off to Legoland tomorrow. So... <laughs> As much as he wants to be with you this morning, I think there was, I don't know who was more excited about Legoland, him or Neve, so, um, but no, he, he asked me to, uh, to fill in for him, and so it's a, it's a wonderful privilege uh, for me this morning to open up the bread of life for us. Uh, if you are new, uh, one, we're so glad that you're here, and uh, if there's anything that we can do to make your time with us better or if we can answer any questions that perhaps you may have from what you've experienced here this morning, please come find me or anybody who's, who's been up here in the front. Um, we would love to be able to serve you better. But if you are new, um, we've been in a series in 1 John, and um, instead of breaking up the series, uh, Kyle just asked me to continue. And so uh, we're going to be looking at the passage that was read for us. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me. Um, to 1 John, it's towards the end of the Bible, um, so if you get to Revelation, go back a little bit and you'll find the, the three letters of 1 John. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back, so please feel free to grab one. I came across a story um, about a previous president of our denominational seminary. And it was a story about this president, he, he had, had run into one of his faculty members, and his, uh, they were having a conversation, um, just kind of about family and life, and, and this faculty member talked about how one night a week, uh, without fail, he and his wife always had a date night. Uh, there was nothing that interrupted this one night where he and his wife would go and have a date night. And the faculty member was, I mean, he was very adamant and very passionate about, like, it's in the calendar, it's there, we've been doing it for years. And so the president um, of, of, of the seminary, the previous president of the seminary, went home and um, he was telling his wife about the conversation that he had with this faculty member, about how this faculty member and his wife, they have this set in stone date night. And apparently his, uh, the president's wife uh, was a very kind and, and very gentle woman, but apparently very witty, because she said after she heard about this faculty member's one night a week date with his wife, she said, well, you know what, it better be date night every night with me. <laughs> and you hear that and you're like, okay, I know what, I know what she's asking, I mean, she's not asking literally to go out and have dinner every single night of the week. But what she's asking is that she, 
She doesn't want just one night where like her husband dotes on her and, and cherishes her and, and shows that he loves her. Like she wants that every night, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one amen. But that, that's the thing, though. It's, it's funny that if you were to, to poll a bunch of guys, be like, all right, if, if you're married and, and you had one night a week where you have date night, all the guys would be like, yeah, man, we're, we're doing good. <laughs> but if you ask the wives, they're like, well, no, of course not. I want date night every night. Like, you want to feel loved and cherished and doted upon all the time. In our passage this morning, um, the Apostle John is arguing that the Christian is wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. Like, it's absolute commitment. Jesus, (laughs) he's not negotiating date nights, if I can put it like that. Jesus is after wholehearted, absolute, total devotion and commitment to him. John is coming in our passage this morning to dispel with the notion that we can somehow profess to know Christ and continue to live as though Christ is some sort of addition to our lives. That we can somehow compartmentalize Jesus with all the other things that go on in our life. Or that he's somehow this added component. And John in our passage is coming to dispel with the notion that if you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, then he's either your life or he's not. He's after wholehearted commitment and devotion. That's what's so stark about the passage that was read. And that's what, in some ways, is very unnerving about me being the one up here to actually explain to you what it actually means. I was telling someone earlier, I feel my own inadequacies. And I feel my own lack of devotion and commitment. And perhaps that's you here this morning as well. So before we dive into this passage, let's pray and ask God to actually assist us and help us. And perhaps even encourage and convict. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we do come and, and we thank you for your word because we know that your word is truth. And we thank you that we are are confronted by your truth. But oftentimes when we're confronted by your truth, it exposes all sorts of things in our own hearts and our own lives. And sometimes that can be a very scary and frightening thing. Uh, But we do ask, uh, Lord Jesus, that as we consider this passage about wholehearted commitment and devotion to you, we would be mindful as we have been singing and confessing of your wholehearted devotion and commitment to us. 
May that be what drives um, us back to you, especially if we have cold and callous hearts this morning. Uh, May your devotion and commitment to us be what rekindles our love and affection for you, that restores our joy and the salvation that we have in you. But we do ask too, Lord, if if our hearts have never been made alive, uh, may your words of truth this morning do its work. So Holy Spirit, we need your help, for we cannot do these things on our own. So we pray that you come now, and you be the great teacher, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the question on the table. How do you know that you know Christ? How do you know that you know Christ? I can remember right after I got married. Literally, my wife and I, Morgan, were, were leaving our reception. We'd gone through all the, the, you know, I think we had sparklers and everyone's cheering us and we hop into my car and there's kind of that, that relief, that sigh, like of all the preparation, all the, all the things that have been on your mind for the last nine months, you know, it's finally over with. You know, you're exhausted, you're tired, but you're excited. And I, re- I remember getting in the car, and I remember looking over to my wife, Morgan. We're literally, like, been married for a couple hours. And I said, do you feel any different? And she looked at me and kind of looked at each other. And we both said, no. And we kind of nervously thought, uh-oh. Maybe something's wrong. We don't feel any different. Even though two hours before it was announced, like pronounced and declared over us that our identities of two individuals had changed. We'd become one. She went from Morgan Martin to Morgan Keenan. Like what was mine now belonged to her. Like her car was now my car. Our bank accounts, everything about us had changed. And yet, (laughs) on our way to downtown Memphis, we're going, do you feel any different? Now, if you were to ask my wife after the service, we've been married almost four years now, do you feel different today? She would say, absolutely, I feel different. And the question is, is why? Why after four years, four years into marriage, would all of a sudden we feel like we've been married? Of course, if you're married here, you're laughing. Of course you feel married when you're married, because it's hard. And it's great, and it's awesome. But why the change? Did we just somehow look at each other and remind each other of our wedding certificate? Is that, is that what brought about the change? Did we read over our vows daily? Well, no. The change that took place was that we started doing life together, and the covenant that we made actually gave rise to the intimacy and fellowship that we ended up having in our marriage. It was the covenant that gave rise to the fellowship and to the life that we now enjoy in being married. 
her joys became my joys. My sorrows became her sorrows. Her achievements and successes became mine. Our life actually became one and is still becoming one. It changes you. That's kind of what marriage does. It's a beautiful and oftentimes painful process. It, it is the great model of sanctification in many ways. But you become a new person when you're married. And here's the thing. In a similar way, John is arguing in our passage that if you claim to be in Christ, if you're united to Him, but you have no intimacy and fellowship with Him, the apostle of love says that you are a liar and that there is no truth in you. Now, here's the thing. You can be married and live as two individuals. And that's a crummy way to be married. Like You can be married and live two completely separate lives. And that's a really unhealthy picture of marriage. And here's what John is saying. <laughs> Jesus doesn't know a marriage like that. Like That concept of being two individuals yet being married is a foreign concept to Jesus. If you're married to Christ then His covenantal love and commitment to you will inevitably change and transform and heal and restore and beautify you. If you are in Christ, you are not the same person that you were. Your life will change, is changing. The question is, is how do you know that you are in Christ? How do you know that you know Christ. Our passage this morning, John is dealing primarily with, with the assurance or the evidence or the proof that you belong to Jesus. How do you know whether or not you know Him or, and are in Him? How do you know Jesus? What's the proof? Where is the evidence? And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at, at two things as we kind of work our way and as I swat this gnat. Um, two things. Because there's a couple of, of dangers in the passage. There's a couple of warnings, a couple of threats. So I want to look at the dangers. And then I want to look at the promise. Because there is a great promise of hope. A great promise of assurance in this passage. That's kind of where we're going this morning. First... The dangers. Look again at verse 3. John says, And by this we know that we've come to know Him. By this we know that we have come to know Him. What does John mean when he says, By this we have come to know that we know Him? And here's the first danger. John is not asking whether or not you know certain things about Jesus. John's not asking us if we're able to fill out some sort of theological exam about the information about who we think Jesus is. John's not concerned about fact-checking what we know about Jesus. There is plenty of things that we know about Him 
But John is not after the things that we know about him. Nor is John after about things that perhaps we see Jesus doing in other people's lives. Like if you see Jesus answer prayer in someone else, like he's not after that kind of response. Like that's not how you know him. And this should not be surprising since John says that knowing God involves fellowship with him. John says that what he's after, the knowing, is actually knowing him personally for one's self. Here's the danger. You can grow up in the institution of the church, the institution known as the Bride of Christ, You can grow up and have all the benefits of having belonged to the church of Jesus Christ. You can belong to the institution where all the promises of the New Testament are for that institution and be disconnected from Christ. That is a great danger that John is warning us about in this passage. And so you need to ask yourself a question this morning that if And if you've actually grown up in the institution of the church, if you have grown up as someone who's kind of just always believed, John is asking you, do you know Him? Do you know Christ? Personally, affectionately, is Jesus real to you? Because if you are not connected to Christ, there is no forgiveness, there's no change, there is no one to give you eternal life. John is after a deep personal knowing, a personal intimacy and interest in him. It's nothing less than that. Is the Lord real to me? That's what John is after. By this we know that you know Him. And so you have to ask yourself the question this morning, is Jesus real to me? Do I know Him? But there's another danger. Look again at verse 3. By this we have come to know that we know Him when we keep His commandments. And again, drop down to verse 5, but whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in Him. John says that we are not only to know Him, but we are to be united to Him. In other words, if you claim to be in Christ, and you have no interest in keeping His Word, or keeping His commandments, or abiding in Him, or walking in the manner in which He walked, John says, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Now let that wash over you for a second. 
John is not saying that you must keep the commandments perfectly. If that was the case, of course we all would be liars and without hope. That's not what he's saying. John is saying that if you profess to be in Christ and you have no interest at all in loving the things that Jesus loves and hating the things that Jesus hates, if you have zero interest in attempting to follow Him and to keep His words and to abide in Him, John says, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. If you profess to be in Christ, but your life is marked by consistent, willful disobedience and a love for sin, then the truth is not in you. A life of sin is directly opposed to the love which God has shown us in Jesus. That's what the first two verses of this chapter are about. That if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who became the propitiation. We looked at this last week. He became the sacrifice who took the wrath of God for our sin. So, a love of sin is directly opposed to loving God. I heard a story about a man who the way in which he dealt with just brokenness and heartache and sorrow and just living in this fallen world, like food was his natural comfort. We all have our vices, we all have things that we run to, but food for this guy was, was the thing that he ran to and his, his overeating got so bad to where he became incredibly obese. So much so that his obesity was causing heart problems and it was causing him not to be able to actually get around, actually to be mobile. Um, and so he went and had surgery in order to help lose the weight. And of course, a surgery like this is incredibly complicated and there's all sorts of risk. And one of the things that happened after the surgery was that they had to remove a third of his intestines. After they stapled his stomach, they had to remove a third of his intestines. And, and due to that, he actually he would end up having to have a colostomy bag for the rest of his life. So here you have a man who, because of his overeating, was having heart problems, could not move around, now had to have his stomach stapled, a third of his intestines removed, and now he was going to have to walk around with a colostomy bag for the rest of his life. And let's suppose, let's suppose that man came up to you and just told you that as a result of my overeating of the way in which I dealt with this fallen and broken world, let's, let's suppose he said, had my stomach stapled, a third of my intestine removes, and now I have this colostomy bag that I have to carry around. What if he... After he told you that, what if he looked at you and said, so how about we go to In-N-Out and let's crush about four burgers, large fries, let's get the large Coke, and let's get one of those milkshakes. So he doesn't like an In-N-Out milkshake after the salty fries, right? 
Let's suppose he said that because, and then he goes like this, he said, I mean, look, I got my stomach stapled. The food just goes right through me. I can eat whatever I want. Like, you would look at that man and go, are you crazy? The food is what was killing you. You did not get your stomach stapled, a third of your intestines removed, and a colostomy bag so now that you can go and overindulge and eat what you want. You would look at him and you would say, you are absolutely crazy. Do you see what John is saying? Jesus Christ, the righteous, didn't die a death we deserve to die by absorbing the wrath of God as punishment for our sins so that we could now overindulge in sin. Because it was the sin that is killing us, and it was the sin that put Jesus up on the cross. John says, if you claim to be in Christ, if you are united to Him, it means we have died to sin and therefore have been set free to live a life of obedience and devotion and following Jesus. You do not understand grace if you think grace allows you to continue to sin. If you are vitally connected to Jesus, this will inevitably lead you to obey Him, to love Him, to serve Him. It means you will love the things that Jesus loves. John wants you to know him and to be united to him. That's what he's after. It's a personal, intimate, loving relationship that will inevitably lead to change and transformation. Knowing him will actually lead to change. The danger is when we live under the faulty assurance where we know things about him or we continue to live a life that is marked by willful, consistent disobedience to where we do not love the things that Jesus loves and we do not hate the things that Jesus hates. So what do we do? How does John deal now with the dangers, with the threats? Well, there is this great promise that you can actually know that you are in Christ. And this leads us Lastly, to our promise. John is asking us, if, if we profess faith in Jesus, do our lives prove that to be the case? In other words, John is saying that a genuine love for God, a genuine love for Jesus, a genuine knowing Him, will inevitably lead to a life of obedience. In other words, you cannot know God and immediately and automatically love Him you cannot know God and it not automatically leads you to a life of obeying and serving Him. And as, as one guy said, it's, it kind of is not rocket science. And at the same time, it's so incredibly hard. We cannot know God without immediately and automatically loving Him. And this love will always manifest itself by doing what the object of its love desires. You cannot receive the life of Christ without becoming like Him. There's the great promise and there's the great hope. 
You cannot receive the life of Christ without actually becoming like him. Do you know that you know him? John's saying, are you becoming like him? Is there proof, is there evidence that you're beginning to look a little bit more like Jesus? John says the proof of this assurance, this evidence, is a life that is, is keeping his word, keeping his commandments. It's, it's abiding him. It's, it's walking as he walked. In other words, it's, it's wholehearted commitment and devotion to him. Now he's, he's not saying you have to be perfect. But can you think of, of where you were a year ago? And be like, you know what? Last year, I was like this. I was, I was a lot more irritated. I didn't have much joy. I was, I was less patient. And now look at yourself if you're in Christ and you think, like, I've got more joy. I'm, I'm less irritable. I've got more patience. Are you able to look back at your life and begin to see where God is transforming you and beautifying you. John says the assurance, the, the, the proof that we belong to him is that we begin to look like him. And that happens through abiding and walking as he walked. So how do we actually get the power to obey? Where does that come from? If this is the proof of a life of Christ, a life of obedience and wholehearted devotion and commitment to Him, where do we actually get the fuel for that kind of obedience, that kind of devotion? John is saying that our obedience in the Christian life always flows out of our knowing Him. Intimacy with God leads to obedience. And if you're married, you know exactly what that means. The more that you're intimate and you commune with your spouse, the more that you're willing to serve and honor and cherish your spouse. Intimacy with God always leads to obedience. You obey because you know Him and are secure in His love. John is showing us that obedience in the Christian life always flows out of our knowing God and His love for us. And some people think that if you continually tell people how much Jesus loves them, that that will somehow demotivate them to not obey. But that couldn't be further from the truth. The reality is, if you don't tell people how secure and loved they are by God, then you'll end up being motivated to obey Him out of fear and guilt. And that is a crummy way to live as a Christian. There was a video that I saw a couple of, of years ago. I don't know if it was last spring or the, the spring before that. But it was a, a video where they, they, a, a group of people brought um, a bunch of moms together. And they interviewed a lot of these moms about being moms. And it, it was a very fascinating video because as the moms started talking about being moms, none of them were actually impressed with how they were being moms. 
They all talked about the regrets they had, about how they wish they were more patient with their kids, how they wish they were, they were less, you know, um, annoyed at their whining. They wish they could serve them better. They wish they could nurture better. They just talked about all of their failures and their inadequacies about being moms. So after the interview, a week goes by, and they bring back the same moms. And what the moms didn't know is that they had interviewed their kids. Some of you may have seen the, the, the video. I think it came around Mother's Day a couple years ago. And, and the guys asked the kids, tell us what you think about your mom. So they sat these moms in front of a computer, one by one. Of course, the moms had no idea what they were about to watch, and up pops a, a face, a recognizable face, their kids. And every single one of the kids, when they were asked, tell us what you think about your mom, they were like, man, my mom's the best. She's my hero. I wouldn't trade her for any other mom in the world. And of course, the moms are just weeping. It's a wonderful picture of a mom who lives in her own state of failure and complacency, or just her own failure and her own sense of inadequacy, to hear how her kids think of her and how they love her and how they cherish her and how they, they long to be with her. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think after those moms heard what their kids thought of them, that they thought, you know what? <laughs> I don't actually have to care for my kids anymore. I don't have to nurture them or love them or serve them. You think that, they, that it actually demotivated them to be better moms? I guarantee you that those moms, after they heard what their kids thought, it motivated them to be more patient, to be more loving, to be more caring, to be more courageous, to be more gracious. You will most obey and keep the commandments and abide in Him and His love when you live out of the security that you know that you're loved by God, you will most obey when you know that security. That you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who willingly and lovingly took our sin to satisfy the wrath of God. John is saying we must live out of that reality. That is where we appropriate obedience and love for God. That is how we walk how we abide, how we keep His commandments out of the security and commitment that God loves you.
and that God is for you. I'm going to close with this. A few years ago, I was listening to a podcast, and there was a guy talking that it was interviewing a Christian woman who was near the end of her Christian life. And she was looking back over the course of her life, over all the things that she did and said, all the things that she had done, and she said this to God. She said, you looked on me and you smiled. You gazed on me and you smiled. John is is calling us to keep, to abide, to walk in Christ. And here's what I want you to understand. The only way in which we can keep and walk and abide is to know that when Jesus' gaze is over you, it's one with a smile. If you think that you have to obey in order to get Christ to abide in you, you will never know the gaze and smile of God. Your obedience did not initiate His love. He loved us before we could ever do anything for Him. Your obedience is a call to action from knowing His eternal love for you. Knowing Him leads to obedience. Knowing that His gaze over you is a smile will move you to become more like Him. Your obedience may be proof that you belong to Jesus. Your your obedience may be evidence that you are in Christ, but do not rest your security or your hopes on your own obedience. Rest your security in the person and work of Jesus. Rest your security and the assurance on Him. And out of that, Intimacy and fellowship and joy upon joy will begin to flow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is our, our prayer that we want to know that we know you. And so I I would imagine there's a lot of of deeply insecure hearts here this morning. Perhaps some hearts that are cold and callous because their life has been, was once marked by love and affection for you, but through heartache and sorrow and just the residue of sin, their heart has become cold and callous. So would you by your grace warm their hearts this morning by the countenance of your love? And would you remind them of, their, of your commitment to them and to us? But would you also give us what our hearts truly long for, and that is to have deep intimacy and communion with you so that our joy may be complete, that our love for you may be perfected. For we know that is where life is. So may you produce in us a heart that is wholly devoted and committed to loving and serving you. Would you do that for us, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.